Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Chilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, the best Hanukkah mass present I could possibly give you. An extended interview with a woman who began the exploration of food and identity, which is at the core of this show. I suppose it is one reason why traditional dishes live on because they matter so much it's memories it's traditions passed on by people you love claudia roden has been capturing the real stories and oral recipes of foods across the mediterranean and middle east since she was in her early 20s you can hear my interview with her about her book med in the cooking the books archive but here we go back to celebrate 25 years of her internationally acclaimed book of jewish food Its influence is a phenomenon. We have foods in our repertoire now that have been hidden in the kitchens of the Jewish diaspora for centuries. Here, in an extended holiday special, she talks about all the things that are good in life. Beautiful recipes passed down through matriarchies, storytelling that binds communities, and the universal pleasure of food that matters. We met in her London home. And I asked her how it feels to be holding this embossed golden anniversary edition in her hands. Well, it feels marvellous. And after 25 years, as I look through the book and I remember working on it, the fascination and the pleasure, all the people whom I interviewed, who I found, who I discovered, the stories... For me, that is a huge pleasure. And it's a huge pleasure also uh, to know that it has been of use to other people, including to chefs. Well, I mean, we have to talk about Yotta Motolenghi, who's become a friend of yours. But back in 1997, when the book first came out, I mean, nobody'd heard of Otolenghi. He hadn't started working his magic. Well, I must say... In Israel as well, uh, where he comes from, um, they didn't recognize that food as Jewish. Um, when my first book came out, it was Middle Eastern, uh, the publishers said, I'll publish it, but um, they looked for me and they wanted to publish it. But he said, I don't think I'm going to sell it because we it is our enemy culture. And... We despise it and we want all our Jews from the Arab lands to leave their culture behind. And that was more than 50 years ago in Israel. It was the, the policy not to allow this culture in. And uh, But when the Jewish book came out then, uh, uh, I did several events uh, in a hotel for two weeks, we had every night a dinner of a different Jewish community. For instance, Indian Jews and Iraqi Jews and Italian Jewish food. And and the national television was there filming. And the crew was saying, where is all this that we don't know? Well, uh, it was a secret cuisine. In Israel, until now, they call... Jewish food, only Ashkenazi food, yeah. uh, the food of the Jews of Eastern Europe and, and Central Europe. But they call 
this food, which is called Mizrahi, meaning of Arab lands and Sephardi, they call it ethnic food. <laughs> People did have it in their homes, uh, but the grand dishes, the kind of dishes that people did in the countries when they were still living in the old homelands. Uh, some had been very wealthy or you couldn't find a restaurant that did that kind of food. I did find one and I went with friends and um, it was, they did mainly Syrian food. They did Arab food and they were Israeli. And I went with a friend and the friend said, you know, my friend here is a food writer and she's written a book on Middle Eastern food. And they came out with my book, my first book. So uh, they've become my great friends there. But what I found is that that book has now allowed the chefs in Israel to say, this is our cuisine. There's so much that you've just said that's really fascinating. First of all, the book of Jewish food really brought together the Jewish cultures from all over the world and yeah. unpacked how people ate and the rituals around it. And people were reading this from all over the world saying, that's us. They recognized yeah. it. You talk about it being secret recipes. These are the, the, the foods that come from the kitchens rather than the restaurants. Yeah. So you know, take us back to somebody yeah. like Ottolenghi who has told you, I mean, yeah. we, we've seen how profoundly yeah. influenced he's been by yeah. what you've written. I mean, what does he say about that moment when he first read your book? Well, I think to me, he said that when he... Um, uh, he was working, uh, doing pastries in, I think it was Baker and Spice, and Sami Tamimi was also there. And they were asked, can you give us recipes from your country? Uh, and so he copied recipes from my book and gave them to him. <laughs> he, copied, he gave them handwritten recipes or something. And uh, he told it uh, to me, but he also told it to, we did a talk together, we talked about each other and I really was so happy and honoured because for me it was fantastic to see the food that we cooked and loved in a restaurant. And I also do remember uh, when supermarkets started doing, actually uh, asking producers to do recipes from the book yeah. and were selling. But I think when your time came along... He created something extraordinary, I think, because he used uh, the different cuisines of the different Jewish communities yes. from all around, especially the the Muslim world yeah. um, that had been secret and unknown. And he used them to create something which I call a Middle Eastern nouvelle cuisine. Yes. And it's a fusion nouvelle cuisine. It means he can use zhuk from Yemen and harissa. He uses a lot of harissa from Tunisia. And he can use elements and, and put them together. And he does it in a fantastic way. Yeah. I must say, not everybody does it well because 
he has influenced, I think, the whole world. Well, he has, absolutely. You mentioned Harissa there. Uh, these are the secret cuisines that you talk about it in the book. Harissa, tahini, pomegranate, lentils, hummus. I mean, hummus. This is yeah. not something that you would necessarily have in a, in a restaurant. Um, th- these were foods from the home. Let's go right back to the very origins of this book. The point of it was for you to gather recipes from people who were fleeing their homes. This was about capturing a sense of self and identity as people were being forced, as you and your family were, from their Jewish communities. And the food represented where they came from, the food from the land, but also who they were. Take us back to that original purpose. Yes, Uh, I have to say that I was asked by my uh, editor at Penguin, after I did my Middle Eastern book, she said, could you do a book of Jewish food? And I said, there's no such thing. Uh, I, uh, we just ate like everybody else. And then she said, but in your book, your Middle Eastern book, you've already got so many dishes, you say a Sabbath dish uh, of your community and uh, a Passover dish and a New Year dish and there's several, there must be in every other community as well. And then I said, oh, but how am I ever going to find all these people? (laughs) Because it was a time when people, especially from the Muslim world, were leaving their old homelands. They had to leave or they had been harassed, or they had been thrown out because of the war with Israel. And that triggered their banishment. But once I decided to do it, I became totally obsessed. And of course, a lot of the recipes in this book are the original ones that came from my family, my own family. And of course, we were refugees. We had to leave Egypt all of a sudden after the Suez War. That's 1956. In 1956. It was, uh, uh, we had been a community of 80,000 and some had left earlier at the time of uh, the state of Israel because they had to, because they were Zionists or whatever. But uh, were most left in 1956. There were a few left for another 10 years, I think. But I was collecting really for us because there hadn't been a single cookbook Mm -hmm. in Egypt and in all the other countries either, in most other countries either. I had never seen a printed recipe in Egypt. And that meant that in those kitchens, people were not really writing them down. It it was an oral culture. It was an oral culture, and and it was uh, passed on in the family, from mother to daughter, uh, and uh, uh, for generations. And people... uh, Yes, they didn't give from one family to another. (laughs) They were jealously keeping them, but they did keep them. And it was incredible because a lot of people, when I started collecting, were telling me it's my grandmother's recipe. I was collecting from people who were my mother's age. I was 21 and 22. (laughs) But uh, we all felt we've got to keep our culture because... It was the only thing 
about our past that we could keep. Yeah. We couldn't keep the languages, and we were all moving to different countries. And actually, uh, part of I often mention this that uh, people were exchanging recipes and saying things like. I'll never see you again. If you give me your recipe for so and so, I uh, when I cook, I'll remember you. Oh, that's so wonderful! And, yes. and you know, you you'd say that you you it, right in the new introduction, which is wonderful. You said I wrote these recipes because I did not want them to disappear. I still hear the voices of the people who gave them. They live on the pages of the yes. book, and I can feel that yes. all the way through. And you talk about how this food memory transports you still. You write the smells made me feel like we'd never left Egypt. It could be cumin and coriander frying with garlic, mingled rose and orange blossom water, on a Friday night turmeric, cardamom and lemon. Now yeah. even saying yeah. those words, I can smell them. It yeah. must have been amazing for yeah. you to cook those or have them yeah. cooked for you in London and smell your Egypt as a yes. young woman. Yes, uh, it was. And uh, even now, uh, uh, when somebody cooks a dish <laughs> that I have, that my mother made, and, and they tell me, but also when I'm there and they give me a piece of something and or I'm there for dinner, and, you know, I feel almost like bursting with emotion. The other day, my my daughter for her, her supper club made konafa in the same tray that my mother had. I took it here and I still use it. And I suppose it is one reason why traditional dishes live on, because they matter so much. It's memories, it's traditions passed on by people you love. Exactly. And that's also true about regional foods in all the countries that I've been. That's right. Tell us about kanafa. Kanafa a la creme is your first food moment. And it's about, this is a crisp vermicelli-like pastry filled with cream made with milk and ground rice and flavoured with orange blossom. But it's more than just a pastry. Pastries represent a very particular place in the culture that you came from. It takes, it's about a very feminine, very matriarchal yes. uh, place in culture. Tell us a little bit about the role of the pastry yes. in Egyptian culture. Yes. Um, I have to say that we had a cook and all the people that I knew had a cook. We were middle class. But because all the cooks came from villages, they from Upper Egypt or all over Egypt, and they cooked, of course, nothing like what we cooked because we all cooked what our families cooked. And Egypt was particular in that we were a mixed community. Our families had come apart from the Jews who had been here long, long before Islam as well in Egypt, there were many, many families, a large part of the community that had come from all over the Ottoman world, mm. uh, from Syria, like three of my grandparents, from Turkey, like my my maternal grandmother, from Morocco, some from Iraq. But they had come uh, because you didn't need a passport. There were no borders in the Ottoman Empire. But they came when the Suez Canal was built at the end of the 19th century. 
because Egypt became this great uh, mercantile hub. But the three grandparents had come from Aleppo, which had been the great mercantile hub in the time of the Silk Route, the Spice Trade. All the routes that came from the east had to pass through Aleppo with their caravans. And then they were put onto ships to go all over the Mediterranean. So my grandparents suddenly lost their trade Mm. and so moved to Egypt. But because of that, our community was a mosaic. And I realized it more than any time that they were so different when I was uh, collecting recipes because I was collecting like a mad collector looking for anybody that was in that bubble of refugees who were meeting all the time and they were telling me this is from my grandmother in Izmir this dish is from um, from Aleppo this dish is from Livorno there were Jews from Livorno who'd come uh, at the beginning of the last century so I realized that we were so uh, varied in our cultures I mean with each of these people you were talking to they had this vast reservoir of story recipes and rituals I mean you must have just popped yes I must say, I just was so totally fascinated that uh, uh, I hadn't been all that we were a Jewish family and we kept religion, uh, but we weren't kosher and all we wanted was to be European, you know, Western. We spoke French at home, Italian as well. We spoke many languages, uh, but uh, I felt that I had, in a way... Uh, I would lose who I was. And it was my discovery of who I was, who we were, all of us, all the people I knew. And And everyone reading your book would then feel that sense of of identity too. I'm I'm just envisaging this young Claudia in Paris, sitting on Aunt Regine's bed, who has a lot of recipes in your book, dictating uh, her recipe for roasted aubergines with yogurt and tahini, meatballs with sour cherry, lamb with apricots. And this is the Kofta Bill Karaz, which is your second food moment. But what I love about Aunt Regine is the story of when you celebrated the book over tea at the Plaza Athene. Tell me about that. Well, you know, she was very grand in Egypt and she would go to Paris to get her clothes, uh, to go to all the events every season. And she would come back with the patterns and have them made up. (laughs) But we thought of her as the most beautiful woman in Egypt. She had green eyes and auburn hair. And when uh, she was in Paris, I remember, first of all, going and asking her for recipes. And I spent days sitting and she was dictating and I was writing. And when the book came out, I phoned her to say, it took a long time for the book to come out, 16 years. (laughs) And I said... There were too many stories together. (laughs) Yes. And I said, uh, it was also difficult to find all the Jews from all over. But... um, Uh, So I said, where would you like to go to celebrate? She said she would like to go for tea to the Plaza Atene. And we went and she arrived. I was waiting for her. 
she arrived uh, uh, in a black lace dress and she had black lace gloves and she had a boa <laughs> uh, and uh, and she came smiling and there was a a pianist who was playing and she went up to him and he stopped and she said will you play la vie en rose of course she did <laughs> of all the amazing recipes in in the book why was this your second food moment well because uh she represented the most refined uh kinds of dishes of syria and uh she was from a very grand old family they had uh, they were called de picciotto because they had been consuls of many countries a dynasty of her ancestors in syria and i realized afterwards because some of the dishes weren't at all what anybody in syria did but some very few people passed on those recipes and then i realized including there was also an orange cake but i got my orange cake from somebody else but that they had come originally from spain from spain when they were banished there they uh, went to portugal uh, but then five years later in portugal they were forced to convert to christianity and not allowed to leave and so they had been christian for about 100 years and then moved to livorno when the de medici who owned the port of livorno wanted to make it into a international port they invited people from portugal and of a lot of them actually nearly all of them who came were maranos maranos means jews who had converted to Christianity and they were invited in as merchants and they were allowed to reconvert to Judaism it's the only city in Italy where they allowed people to reconvert in the others you could come as a Jew and stay as a Jew but if you came as a Christian you could not reconvert except in Livorno and then from Livorno they moved to Aleppo in Syria and uh, and there they continued to cook dishes that um, weren't uh, actually Syrian but they were cooked by a, a community of Jews who became the grandees yeah. of Syria they were grandees because they spoke many languages from Spanish and of course Arabic as well but they spoke french and italian they'd been <laughs> and so they were called actually uh, signorim black grand seigneur yes. or medias and i kept asking why did they call them medias and i understood that they called them medias because uh, whereas everybody else stuffed their vegetables whole they cut their vegetables as in italy in half and baked them with a stuffing on and and because they cut them in half they called them medias it means half oh yes yes and so you know there are so many things about discovering just from one little thing yes. 
It is it is absolutely fascinating how a recipe can travel with its people right across the world. And your book is absolutely full of this. And of course, including uh, the ghettos of, of Venice. How did you find the recipe for your third food moment, the budino di zucca gialla? Uh, when I didn't have contacts, I always tried to find Jews wherever I was or something. And I uh, went to, to Venice to the ghetto, and there are uh, three synagogues there, and I went to one of the synagogues, and uh, the rabbi there, he asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm looking for recipes, and he said, sorry, I'm no good, (laughs) but you go to the old people's home in Venice, just nearby, and there's women there who've come to cook for the Sabbath, and uh, you can ask them. And so... Uh, I went there and, you know, I was so thrilled because they had, um, uh, they would go and cook on festive occasions and on on a Friday they were volunteers and uh, they even, if you were a tourist and you were there on Passover, you could go and eat there. So they were part of an organization of women, WITSO. It is an international. But there they had um, from different cities in Italy. And so they had decided to collect the regional Jewish recipes or the Jewish recipes from the different regions because they were different in every region. Because Italy had been uh, divided into different countries until maybe a hundred or not quite two hundred years ago, and uh, the Jews had been there uh, for for centuries, and then they were put into ghettos at one time, yeah. and the first ghetto was in Venice yes. because they came in such a large number at a certain time from Spain, from Germany, from that they were put uh, into walls and a gate. They could go out during the day, but at night they had to go back in. That's right. It's a terrible idea to contain people. But as a result of this, the the culture becomes enriched. Tell us about the Budino di Zucca Gialla. So it was the local uh, Italian dish, but... When the Jews left the ghetto, which was when um, Napoleon invaded and there was the idea of enlightenment and and human rights and all that, so they left the ghetto. And so their food became very much the influence on the food of Venice because the food of Venice had been very basic. Mm -hmm. But suddenly the food in the ghetto had been German because the German Jews had come. It was a time also of persecution. They had come, the Ashkenazi. There were those who came from Spain. They were Jews from the south, from Sicily, who had come up because Sicily had been, and the south of Italy had been Spanish. So they were banished from Sicily as well. And they came up. And also Jews from the Levant, they came as traders because they were. Uh, this was the root of also the spices and everything else. Right. And so 
there was this very, very incredibly cosmopolitan Venice. And when they came out, their dishes, including this dish, became a dish of Venice. But some of famous ones are are fish uh, with, uh, I think it's, I'm not sure whether it's red mullet or what, with raisins and pine nuts. So you see, it had nothing to do with Venice, but it had to do with the Jews who had come from the Arab world and then to Spain and so. Your final food moment is a spinach and potato pie, but it comes from, it's called Svongo, and it comes from Istanbul. Now, this is another of your lovely stories about your grandmother Eugenie. Yes. Well, my grandmother, yes, uh, they were families like most of the families in Istanbul, the Jewish families. Most of them came from Spain directly because when they were banished from Spain, the Sultan uh, of Turkey wanted at that time uh, to, they had just taken, uh, conquered so many lands that became part of the Ottoman Empire and including Constantinople, which was Byzantine. Uh, Constantinople, of course, was the name before Istanbul. The Sultan then decided to take all the Jews who wanted to come to go and fetch them from uh, Spain and bring them and divided them throughout their empire. Uh, And so a lot of them came, fetched them by ship, and they brought them to uh, to Istanbul. They also brought them to Thessalonica, which was Greek, because a lot of the Greeks had fled, or they banished them when they took Salonica. And so, well, my grandmother was a Judeo-Spanish speaker, yeah. and um, her father became a headmaster of the Alliance Française-Israélite which was French schools, that was something that was started by France to educate the Jews of the Muslim world, but also of the Balkans and the East, because when they left Spain, they didn't have the language of the world. At the time, French was the language with which you could do business or you could do all sorts of things. And so they took young people from those countries, brought them to France to teach them um, uh, at university, to teach them how to become teachers of French. And so my great-grandfather had opened French schools or French Jewish schools all over the Middle East. That's why the Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews speak French. He was from Istanbul, and then he sent his daughter also to become a teacher in Paris. Then that's how she came to Egypt, to become a teacher of French at the Alliance. So I um, found a synagogue in Ortaköy where my family, my great-grandfather and the ancestors, they were called Alfondari. Their photos are all there as well. And you had no idea that you were going to find this rich treasure trove. Yes, I always knew that they came they from. But not so there. many of your ancestors, going back hundreds of years. Oh, yes. But also I found the houses where one of the houses, they were in Ortaköy, a whole lot of houses, a whole street 
of wooden houses that were built by Jew and inhabited all by Jews. And uh, so one of the houses is where she lived. But when I went to Turkey, I didn't know if I had any relatives there, but there are some. Um, but, I mean, they are distant. But I did ask a friend here who is from Istanbul, and she gave me an, uh, names of her her parents and her aunts and and I went the first thing that I did was I phoned and I went and they were having a card game and then there was always one person who had to leave the table because there was always one extra and so I was sitting there each person who left the table would come and give me recipes (laughs) and they were different different from different parts of Turkey because, again, the Jews had different cuisines in different cities yeah. there. So but not so much of the Iberian uh, influence. They were all Iberian were all of Iberian. influence. <gasps> but they also had something of local. Yeah. and uh, But it was Iberian. But what to me was extraordinary was that they also gave me another address uh, and told me to go Two days. I was there actually to research the food of Turkey, of, and they said go to these old ladies. <laughs> they are younger probably than what I am now, but to me they were old ladies, <laughs> and um, uh, they were living in this block of flats where half of it was Jewish, but like on the not sort of by floor, but by side. And then the other half they was all inhabited by Muslims. But uh, when I went, they were all widows mainly, living uh, in different flats. And they waited for me in one of the flats, and everyone had a tray of food that they had brought for me to taste. And um, they were talking to me in French, to each other in Judeo-Spanish, or Ladino, some people call it. And... Um, I unfortunately had been researching the kebab houses in the morning and lunchtime and I went there in the afternoon and I had been forced to eat so many kebabs (laughs) of every possible kind in so many places that when I saw their trays of food, which were mainly little pies, I just said, I can't. I can't eat. And they just said, you have to. to. And I said, I'll take all the food and eat it tonight or later or tomorrow in my hotel. They said, no, we want you to eat it and to tell us. Because of course they're feeders. You can't say no to a Jewish mama. And they forced me because they wanted me to tell them what. And actually they went on and they told me they were writing... Uh, uh, they were putting together a cookbook, which was came out in Judeo-Spanish and Turkish. When was this? Uh, it was when I was researching, so it would have been 40 years 18, ago. Yeah. So I nearly died <laughs> to have to tell them. And they were doing it as a community book oh. to pay for the Jewish old people's home and, um, of, and, of and, Istanbul. And the, one of the pies, I presume, is the svanga. Yes. So one of the recipes that I got 
was a stronger. Actually, I got it from someone else as well because I very often wanted to hear from two people mm. to see it's is it different. In yes, a way. Yeah. but actually, what is extraordinary to me is the way tradition is so mm. powerful that people never ever wanted to be different. Yeah. They wanted to do it right. Yeah. And this dish, Sfongo, was a Passover dish uh, on a night, usually it's the Thursday night, when you don't eat meat. Mm. And that's why it's dairy. Yeah. But why it's Passover? Because they call it a pie, which is mashed potato as a bottom and top with a filling of spinach. And so it's a pie because they would have done it as a phyllo pie. Ah. And so in Passover, you can't eat flour. You yeah. can't eat grain because they are not allowed, yes, for, for kosher rules. Yeah. You know, Claudia, I hear so often these stories. Um, I'm thinking about all the wonderful food writers who I have on the show now who talk about not deviating at all from yeah. the original recipe, you know, because yeah. it's holding on the grip yeah. is, is so strong. Yeah. It is always, from what I realise, uh, immigrants who write cookbooks yeah. because you don't write in your own country when everybody else cooks anyway yeah. and they don't want to know what you cook. Yeah. You know, that's it. And and you don't need to. But it's only when you're far and you're desperately nostalgic, you really want to find out exactly. And, and that is what gives you comfort and joy and happiness and also reminds you who you are. And so when I wrote my book, it was when Jews were beginning to leave also their communities and... There are now many Jewish cookbooks of communities uh, from different countries as well. But I also felt when I was writing it, uh, or rather I wrote it for us at first, I, com I collected just for us, but then I collected so much that I uh, wanted to do books. I mean, I'm thinking of my first book. And so I knew that people wouldn't want to uh, cook a Middle Eastern dish because the Middle East here was the enemy uh, culture as well because NASA had thrown out the British and there had been trouble with the oil. Mm -hmm. But the Middle East was also seen as disgusting food mm -hmm. when I told people I'm researching Middle Eastern food they would say is it going to be testicles and eyeballs you know and there was such a bad image of yeah. what the food was of the desert or something that I wanted to say look there is a wonderful culture behind and those dishes mean so much to some people that you must know and so I put in poems and stories and proverbs, but also stories of my family. Yeah. I just felt you've got to realize that it's not just a dish. But it also makes us understand other cultures. You know, I'm thinking yeah. about all those wonderful food writers who come on my show yeah. and talk about all their different cultures. And really, yeah. we've talked about Ukraine, we've talked about Romania, we've talked about Africa, yeah. we've talked about Japan. Yeah. It is a way of understanding other people's culture, and yeah. it makes us better people to understand and to cook from each other's cultures. So where you started... Yeah. 
by collecting these recipes to hold these tight, to yeah. keep these identities secure, yeah. it's now been a wonderful sort of a bleeding into the rest of our wonderful melting pot. It makes it a better yeah. world. Because you are able, because people are not going to buy a history book of Sudan or or of anywhere, or of the Jews. Yeah. People didn't want to read about the history of the Jews. Mm-hmm. But if you've got the recipes, <laughs> then there's the story yes. there. And so a lot of people have told me, uh, you know, I've discovered the whole story of the Jews through your book. I wouldn't have if I wasn't going to cook these recipes. Yeah. And this is what now I think I am learning from the cookbooks of all the people who are writing now. It has created a genre. Yes. And I think you are right that people do tell me I was inspired by how you wrote yeah. to do my book. Yeah. And that it is worth telling the story because you enrich a, a culture here. And because Britain is a country that has adopted and has appreciated other cuisines more than any other country. Other countries, they don't actually cook at home the dishes from anywhere the way the English are able to and actually want to and enjoy and make the most of all the cultures there. But at the same time, it gives them an intimate knowledge of who people are and how, uh, you know, you can talk to somebody now from Ukraine and you see what they're eating and, uh, and you smile because you know, because you read their book. It's like you've been into their kitchen and you've tasted their secret recipes. You've been invited yeah. into their homes through the power of food writing. Yes, there's a bond already. There's many sayings about how food, if you eat together, it creates a bond. But sometimes if you eat somebody's food, even if you're not together, it creates a bond because you know who they are, you know where they come from, because culture is so important and powerful about identity, about who people are. It's like hearing their music and loving their music. If you love their food, then... You love them. You love them. When we had our chat at the Jane Grigson Trust Awards uh, last year, I think it was, you said to me that you wanted to go right back to the beginning and revisit your early books. Now, is that this new introduction that you've written or have you got another book up your sleeve? I've got another book because in this book I did not change the recipes at all. They, uh, Penguin wouldn't allow me anyway, but they allowed me to add recipes at the end or to add stories, which I did, and a new introduction uh, because I looked at it and I thought, no, I can't change anything. Because the Bible, yes, because I, I word for word what people told me, but I did actually have to test the recipe, retry them several times to make them work. Because a lot of people who gave recipes did not measure, they would say it's how much it takes, and I had to work out how much it takes and to to do it correctly. To pass on. And so what's so, the new book? So the new book is Middle Eastern because 
I found by chance a whole cache of thousands of photographs that I took when I travelled 40 years ago to Morocco, to Tunisia, to Turkey, right across, and to Egypt again, because even though we were banished, I am invited back <laughs> to give seminars to the Chefs Association about what they should be cooking and also what is their food, what is their history, what is their history of Middle Eastern. And so that cache of photographs that I never looked again, I just didn't think I'd ever do anything with them. I didn't value them. I just did it for me to remember. And suddenly I see them all and nobody has had photographs of these times of food, of people who make food, who cook, but also artisans and those who sell. And so I am going to revisit the Middle East and update. And I, for one, and want to make it easily, not just for myself, but for everybody else, because nobody wants to take so long. So uh, the recipes that can be made quicker, with less fat. Uh, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what really now gives real pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can sign up to my newsletter at jillysmith.com and follow me on Instagram. I'm at food Smith, and I'll see you in the new year for more stories of life through the prism of food. Have a very Merry Christmas and Hag Sameach.